You are cordially invited to a night at the opera with America's most cultured podcast, The Pod People. It's a me, Daniela Suave. I'm Ben Sheets, and for this episode, I'm rubbing my hands together like Birdman. You guys know who it is. It's the cursed Scottish gay, Cleveland Mosher. I thought you were Welsh. I'm a mutt. We're here to talk about opera, which was Ben's pick. Mm -hmm. Uh, The uh, 1987 Dario Argento Giallo classic. A bopera, if you will. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of my favorite Argentos. I know uh, one of yours as well, Ben. Yeah, well, it's funny. This was like kind of the end of the era for Argento before he started making kind of mid-movies. Because he had an incredible run from, like, mid-70s to 80s with, like, Deep Red and Suspiria and Tenebra and Opera. Was this uh, Argento's last banger? He's still alive. I think so. Honestly, I haven't seen a ton of his stuff after this one. But I haven't heard great things either. Yeah, I don't think that I have either, now that now that you mention it. Well, this is sort of a... Uh, it, it's a classic Argento in many ways. Um, it's got all of his hallmarks, the black-gloved killer, and uh, the stylish uh, giallo cinema flares. Um, it's about an opera singer who is uh, stalked by a mysterious killer uh, after... Um, an accident with the uh, lead role in a performance of um, Verdi's Macbeth leaves her, the understudy, as the new lead. Uh, and it seems like there is maybe some uh, some shenanigans that led to that as well. But this was your first Bopera experience, Cleve. How did it find you? I am a huge fan now as well. I loved it. Edge of my seat. Yeah, it's legitimately tense at times. Yeah, very exciting. Um, I mean, it's it's what you'd come to expect from from Argento at this point. Very stylish, very over the top. Lots of uh, good, long, exaggerated kills with creative weapons. Yeah, it's 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 pretty much everything you could want. I think. Yeah, I think out of all of the Argento movies that I've seen. And granted, I haven't seen them all, but this is probably the one with my favorite cinematography in terms of like the way the camera kind of floats around and moves around so dynamically. We get some crazy tracking shots throughout this. Also, just like an incredible setting, too, right? Or or Mm -hmm. rather, many incredible settings, but. You know, a lot of the film does take place in this, like, big, gorgeous opera house. And for somebody with, like, Argento's stylistic sensibilities, it's just, like, there's so much you can do with that and to, like, such Mm -hmm. great effect. And it does so many cool things. Can I just say, as someone who grew up backstage, you know, grew up working on, like, you know, like, small-town productions and, and, you know, working at a theater as well and uh, all the, the fun technical stuff that goes on behind the scenes. I've never seen the chaos shown so accurately before. Whenever we go behind the curtain, there is just utter chaos. It's that kind of, like, synchronous chaos where, like, everything gets out on stage just in time, and people are chatting and moving around, and it's all, like, like an, 
it's amazing no one's getting a sandbag on the head and like the, the costumer is freaking out and trying to make things just right and the director is just barely like keeping it all together and managing it like it's so true it, it it's so earnest and you just you have to like be involved in those sorts of like backstage performances and in and, and theater to really like for that that to really to understand and to be able to capture it and coordinate it in a movie that well one of my favorite details in this movie is that the uh, the director of this uh, this opera um, is a former horror film director who made the jump to opera, which uh, you know I mean it's very easy to see this kind of character as as sort of Argento's own self insert, right? But um, I just think that it's it it's such a a, a fun little detail that this uh you know multiple people comment on it um in throughout the movie that like you know he's he went from making these sort of exploitative like gory slasher movies to uh you know working in he goes from low art to high art right um yeah i I just think that it's so it's perfect for the setting it's really funny because a lot of the characters complain about how non-traditional his approach to Macbeth is like they yeah. they call it gimmicky yeah. because he has like <laughs> live ravens all over the place and yeah uh, well well the ravens are very sets. important yes they are as they should yeah be. i i love the little bit of like the actual opera that we see in this cuz it's like this really uh interesting um like sort of contemporary uh telling of Macbeth that's lo- looks like it's set in like World War 1 you know mm-hmm. but still the the our protagonist who is like playing Lady Macbeth she still has this very sort of traditional uh operatic all like sort of Wagner-esque costume with like this almost like golden armor that she's wearing it's really and then there's just there's like the big skull like floating in the back of the of the stage like looming over the battlefield um well i read her costume is like uh european high society of the 40s like to me, it, it all yeah, it, it, it looked like a, yeah, they were definitely going for like a World War Two era thing like, across the board. But yeah, that skull was so fucking cool though, right? Like yeah, I don't, I don't know, yeah. man. Like I I I've seen a lot of like European movies from the forties and fifties. I've never seen anybody wearing an outfit like she was wearing. Like it's definitely exaggerated. It's got like all of these oh, sure. I mean, golden like these golden discs like sewn together like old armor it's it and she's she's holding a gun too during her aria um which is is very like all of this is it's like very on the nose um but like nice sort of like foreshadowing for the rest of the film you've got like this looming specter of death you know that's mm-hmm. just like hanging over her you mentioned the ravens ben they're they're a very important uh both you know metaphor of course but also like like plot device in this movie for for many many reasons um yeah and a great excuse to get some of the coolest shots in the movie yes one of the first shots we get is a close-up on a raven and the reflection in its eye is the opera going on and yeah, for that's... like the 80s it's insane that they got that shot well it's technically anything to do with the ravens in this movie is some of the craziest and and um most impressive stuff i've seen like if you're just like an average movie goer i could see you just like kind of shrugging that off and be like oh cool they have ravens in the scene but like 
being able to train and have that many birds doing exactly what you need them to do at a given time in a scene, in a coordinated scene, is crazy. Because they even show, like, the chaos of the birds and, like, handling them. Um, like, I think one of the, the opening, in, in the opening scene, like, the, the lead actress who's playing Lady Macbeth is, like, getting upset because the ravens are kind of flying around her and causing havoc while she's um, mm-hmm. trying to sing. Yeah, well... That's that's the that's the one of the inciting incidents, right? The Ravens have like so many important like plot driven moments throughout the movie too, and like yeah, that's the first one is that this this uh, opera is making use of like having live ravens all over the place, and the the woman who is playing Lady Macbeth hates it so much she feels like they're bad luck, you know, which also goes on with like the 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 curse of Macbeth and whatnot, um, which we can talk more about, but they're bad luck and they're staring at her and they're they're cawing during her her singing and it keeps distracting her and it leads her to, you know, run out into the street in, in a fit of rage and gets hit by a car, which then, you know, is what puts our protagonist, Betty, who who's the understudy into that lead role. Um, but yeah, the opening credits, is, this has like some of my favorite opening credits of like any, any Argento movie, especially, but just like mm-hmm. movies in general of like hearing this opera rehearsal going on in the background while we just sit on this close up of this irritated Raven, like croaking and calling as the, the, uh, the credits roll to the left of it. Um, I know that the rate working with these Ravens was famously one of the, the most difficult parts of the production of this film. They were very difficult to work with um, for all the reasons you stated, Cleve. But uh, apparently it would take like the whole crew hours to wrangle them at the end of the day because they just had them like out on set. They were just like flying around set. So they had to, like, before everybody could leave, get them back in their cages before the end of the day, right? So they would just take hours trying to wrangle all of these loose ravens. Um, I think I read that they had, they used something like 160 ravens in this movie, or 140 ravens. And at the end of production, only 60 were accounted for. All of the rest had managed to uh, escape throughout the course of the production. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so they 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 lost over half of the ravens they used in this movie they just got out which i think is awesome yeah well you can imagine like frustrated actors like leaving and trying to like you know come and go and uh or you know technical people like moving equipment in and out of the building and like of course the ravens a raven or two is just going to fly out if they have that many in the building like good lord right you know they can fly up into yeah. the rafters and find their ways to get into the attic and like find like somewhere to squeeze themselves out of into like the city or whatever like it's yeah and like they're smart as shit too they're also like the smartest birds and so i can imagine they were just like an absolute fucking pain to work with but man used to such incredible effect in this movie yeah they they magpie they they steal they they take valued objects they remember too they hold (laughs) they hold grudges they hold grudges yeah which ends up being a, a big plot point in this movie we won't get to that quite yet but yeah, and that was super cool i loved that oh and they shit that's the other thing right like yes. i can't i oh, man, that many that many ravens like flying around the building shitting everywhere oh man that 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 alone 
must have been difficult. Imagine being on a film set yeah. for like 10 to 12 hours in a day, like trying to do your job, and there's just like 80 loose ravens just flying around shitting and cawing and pro- certainly <laughs> stealing stuff. I mean, it, this is one of those things like you probably could not have done it if you were shooting like on set sound. I'm sure it was just well, cacophonous. Yeah. That's the funniest thing because, you know, because this is very much in the Italian giallo tradition of not recording audio. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet there were many people on that set who were like the the prima donna at the beginning in the in the care in the the film who get so frustrated with the ravens and she runs out into traffic. But uh, you mentioned like the the super close up of the raven's eye, which is used more than once mm-hmm. in this movie um which is nice because i feel like it serves as sort of you know uh simulacrum of like the the lens of the camera but also to remind you that the ravens are here this whole time and they're watching and they're remembering the ravens know who the killer is right <laughs> the ravens have seen every yep. have seen it all it's great foreshadowing I, I mentioned using the Ravens for camera stuff, and this movie is so full of, like, long, steady cam shots and tracking shots. Very uh, Brian De Palma-esque. But you get that incredible shot where it's from the perspective of a Raven flying around in the theater, and it's, like, tracking down and up, and it, just imagining how they shot it. It's so crazy how they, me. how they kept focus. I'm guessing they probably had like the cam like a camera operator like on like uh like a trapeze wire or something. <laughs> I don't, and just like swinging him around about like the the theater. I that's the only way that I I could imagine them like being able to get that shot and still have like any sort of camera control. Before we had uh drone shots and it was inside so you couldn't do a helicopter. <laughs> Either that <laughs> or like a giant crane. That would be tricky be well. indoors like you said, yeah. It's crazy too cuz like it's it's crazy. a beautiful old theater. And I I can't imagine them getting away with having all those ravens loosed in there and all those equipment, like, you know, like, whatever technical equipment they needed to get those shots, like... Pooping on everything. Pooping on everything, like, just havoc. That must have been a nightmare. I'd be curious to know, I'm sure you could look it up, um, whether they shot this on location at, like, an actual opera house, or if they built, like, a set in a soundstage or something. I think, um, I think that... Probably, probably a little column A, column B. All of the backstage stuff, I'm, I I think, was a soundstage. Yeah, because I, I feel like you really could not get away with uh, having, like, over a hundred loose ravens flying around in, like, an actual... <laughs> like, an actual opera house. Maybe. I don't know. The 80s were... The 80s were a different time, man. Yeah, man. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about our protagonist, yeah. who is uh, Betty, played by uh, Christina Marsalak. Um, how how do y'all like her in this movie? I thought she was great. I think she's great, yeah. And I think the uh, the person they got for her dub it was pretty good too. I thought she she did great, and I thought she was like you know really. Uh, 
really sympathetic in the movie too and i i like her performance a lot the reason i asked how y'all thought she did is because i i saw that like argento in like one of his books or something said that she was like hands down the most difficult actress he ever worked with and oh really i just saw that blurb like i don't know why she was difficult but it seems like and and it's like was she really difficult or was argento just an asshole you know there were Um, a couple of staging sequences in the plot that makes sense to me in that respect i'm not going to get into plot specifics but towards the end we have a pretty significant jump in time and the way that that is blocked and set up feels like an actor didn't show or something like it feels like there is to me like something like hinky like technically that happened you know like in the scheduling or whatever and i and i feel like i could, I could she's there She's there, but, like, it, it's kind of hard to explain. It's more of a feeling, but, like, the, the setup of it and the way it's sort of... Maybe it's just the way it's cut together. It just it, well, it felt kind of slapdash. I don't know. Let's let's come back to that, because I definitely do... I definitely do have thoughts about the the, the part of the film that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and and so did so did the American distributor uh, for this film, which was Orion. But uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the end of the film. Um... But I, I really like Betty in this. I like that she she really feels like a a like young, talented singer, but lacking the confidence that's you know sort of required for the role that's thrust upon her. You know, she's she's the very mm-hmm. she's a very re- reluctant star, but she does. You know, everybody loves her, and she's great, and she's got an incredible voice, and obviously she's got this you know, mysterious killer who's infatuated with her. And he sort of implies, you know, that he had something to do with getting the other, uh, the other woman like hit by the car or whatever. Like he had some role in that. So he was like elevating Betty. Um, and some mysterious role in her past as well. Yes. I, Um, I love her reluctance. It, it really uh, helps you relate with her as a protagonist. Um, Because so often the stereotype that we're even set up with at the beginning of the film is that these these opera singers are prima donnas. And they are full of themselves and sleep around. And, you know, that's even commented on in the movie, right? Like, And there's like a whole culture that's built up around these singer celebrities. And her character is anything but. She defies all of those, like, negative tropes and conventions and it makes her incredibly relatable like this this opportunity is thrust on her and she's scared by it as anyone would be um and she's not sure she's ready and um but she's she's confident enough that she does follow through with it and she tries and i i found that whole struggle to be really relatable and and endearing with her character and it sure isn't easy. It sure doesn't make it any easier that there's a psycho on the loose who keeps tying her up and forcing her to watch him kill uh, people who are close to her. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make her yeah. job any easier. Those sequences are horrifying. But I will say, yeah. one of my one of the most endearing parts of Betty is uh, how much she hates the cops. Yes. <laughs> and as you know, she after should. after her first show someone knocks on her door and it's a dude with a flower and uh she's super flattered and is like you're my first fan and then he reveals that he's a police officer and her mood completely changes 
It's like, oh, you're not actually here to congratulate me. You're here to interrogate me. That inspector, what did you call him, Cleve? He's like the most handsome inspe- He's the most handsome man alive. Yeah, like, well, yeah, it was something funny. It was like, it was, it was like, oh, I think it was just like Detective Sexy or something. Yeah, like yeah, in- Inspector Sexy or something like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, damn, dude, they, they picked the most conventionally attractive man to play this, like, washed-up detective yeah. they could find. Like, holy shit. Go-go, go-go gadget cum gutters. Yeah, like, he was, like, like, wow, yeah, like, they, they really found, like, the most, like, guy, guy that they could find for this role. And it's, it, it, it took, <laughs> it almost takes you out of it. It's like, oh, because you see him, like, interacting in the scene, it's like, okay, he's one of the other actors, because he looks like one so much, and it's like, yeah, nope, he's, he's like, par- he's, like, cartoonishly handsome, yeah, but it yeah. is funny, because it's, like, she's very, like, taken with him at first, when he comes to, like, get her autograph, and, like, give her the rose and everything, but then it's like, oh, he's a cop, she's all of a sudden, like, nope, not interested anymore. <laughs> you know what? Respect. Respect. Good, <laughs> good for Betty. <laughs> Her instincts, her instincts are right more than she knows. Um, yeah. Well, I I do want to you know mention we we talked already a little bit about like the kills, but I want to get more into that because this movie has some of my favorite uh, like Argento kill scenes. Um, I love that like Betty is a you know unwilling observer to all of these because the this this man in this sort of bl- in this black hood keeps showing up and he ties her to to things and um, puts uh, like tape with pins sticking up like right under her eyes so she can't close her eyes without you know lacerating her eyelids so she's forced to watch as he just like brutally murders like first like the guy she's sleeping with and then like the costume designer on the play um and like i love the fucking like pins under the eyes yeah it's horrifying (laughs) i uh i too because like you can feel it you know almost because you you know how getting pricked by a pin feels, you know. And you know how it feels when something gets caught under your eyelid and starts like yeah. like scratching your eye and stuff. I, I saw that Argento came up with that idea um, because he would always talk about how frustrated he would get when people would like look away um, during like the scary parts in his horror films, and he would joke like, "I wish I could tape uh, needles under their eyes so they wouldn't be able to look away," and so that he actually did that for this oh, movie. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. What, exactly. What a fucking freak. But also, like, it's such a cool image. Um, it's like so like viscerally unsettling, you know. Like eye trauma is already is like hard for a lot of people. I watching movies. Like, yeah, I, I don't like eye trauma or I'm for me it's like really tooth trauma um that fucks me up, but like eye trauma is bad. It's just like there's so much like incredible macro photography in this too. Like we've always we've already talked about like the ra- like the close-ups of the the raven's eyes you know there's watching is like viewing is obviously like very central to the the themes of this movie but like yeah we get so many like incredible like extreme close-ups of her eyes you know with these needles under them and they've you know they've put some some blood like on her eyelids and like dripping off her eyelashes 
you know, where she's she's already been nicked by these needles. Reminds me of like uh the, I think you mentioned it. We were watching it together, Cleve. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah. like some of those uh, like extreme close-ups of of eyes. Um, yeah, it's like I would say like so this cool. movie, Texas Chainsaw and Saw Two are like the eye trauma trilogy um, for just like, all those, like <laughs> macro eye trauma shots. Like I mean, like it's it's a it's a trope as old as time, and I think like a lot of horror films do that shot where like the sharp thing is like right up near the eye. Uh, recently, uh, Resident Evil Rise did that. Um, but evil dead rise evil dead whatever um (laughs) (laughs) those films in particular but this one i think more than any like i i'm struggling to think of a a film where the eye trauma was as hard to watch because like in saw 2 when it's like oh the key's behind your eye and they're like trying to you know like uh like pull it out like the eyes already had the damage done to it so like it it's scary and they've got those really great shots of like the coming in really close in, in amongst all the crazy speed rampy bits because it's saw but and it's like well, those are my first films where like I saw that and I was like oh my god that's so terrifying with the eye trauma. But this one in particular is is I think the most rough because there's just a bit of damage whenever she flutters her eyes because she's trying to keep them open. But also like it's hard a lo- enough to like not blink. Um, I guess Clockwork Orange is also like kind of similar in that respect when he's like forced to watch. But uh, that machine is just holding his eyes open. Like here it's like <laughs> you know there's there's a punishment. There's an immediate punishment if you do fl- flutter your eyes. Um, well, yeah. I, I I said it while we were watching it, and I'll I'll say it again. Um, if you think the uh, the eye trauma in this movie is bad, we got to get you watching more fucking Fulci movies because oh, yeah. Fulci is really the uh, the Italian giallo king of the of eye trauma. Oh, like yeah. almost all, almost all of his movies have some kind of like gratuitous eye dra- eye trauma. I mean, we watched uh, it doesn't one dude we watched the Beyond a couple years ago right like doesn't isn't there a dude who gets like a doesn't the spider like bite his eye is a spider like his eye eye Um, yeah it's pretty dope um yeah yeah that's it's so spooky what i also love about those shots is i think in other circumstances it would be corny but argento is like the king of like um eov shots um yeah uh like like and and showing you like oh from their perspective and I was already so like, oh, like fucked up by like the and, and, and skeezed out by like the, the the needles being taped under the eye um, that it really did a number on me when like we then get the eye cam and there are those shots from her perspective where the needles are like just out of focus, like right in mm-hmm. her vision, and she's watching and mm-hmm. it, I felt it like and normally it would be corny, but it really lands. Um, just, like, the way that she's looking around, like, they got a great, it, it, it captures her, her head movement well. You really believe that you're, like, looking through her eyes, and, you know, like, that these needles are, are taped to you, and you just can't look away. I feel like you, I feel like you hit on something really important there, that, like, you've been saying that it's, like, almost corny, but, like, it hit, instead, it, like, hits so hard. I feel like that's, like, really giallo distilled as a subgenre of horror is that like it's simultaneously yes obviously very corny but also so visceral um i i think that that's like really uh a a balance that like no other genre of of film does to the same degree i think yeah Yeah, master of it i would even contend this movie isn't that gratuitous or over the top but it feels extreme because every 
bit of violence we get is so tactile. I think there are a couple of like pretty gratuitous moments. Like, no, it's not like a ton, ton, but especially that first like kill scene where he's like watch it. He's like making her watch as he kills like her boyfriend, and he's got that like big triangular knife, very much. Uh, obvious how uh inspired malignant was by mm-hmm. this movie particularly it was just like the shape of that blade but when he like he like first stabs him and he stabs him like under the jaw through like the bottom of his mouth yeah. and as he screams you can see like the blade inside his mouth like stabbing yeah through his it's, it's the tactile details you know like it's, that's that pretty, little that's pretty bit gruesome yeah it was impressive I, I uh in the moment I was so caught up in it, I couldn't even tell how they did it. Like, I'd have to watch it again and and see. Because, like, it, I, I'm sure, like, they just have, like, a little blade prop, like, in his mouth. But it really does look like it went all the way up and through. And, and yeah. It, you know, obviously it didn't. But, like, that's damn good makeup. It it really, it, li- it's, it lines up really well. Because you can see the, the, the knife, like, at the base of his throat, too. And, like, it, yeah. the, the blood, like, pours out of his mouth. Like, I would think if there was something in there, like, that would, it would, it would set it off. Like, it's, it, and, it, like, yeah. It's that it's that exaggerated it's that exaggerated like super bright red giallo blood that like really looks more like paint than blood but mm-hmm. still like it's just it's so gruesome and I it, I I feel like it does like a little bit of like a punch in on his mouth on that shot too uh, maybe I'm imagining that uh, I can't remember for sure but uh, for like how good it is is that like you know it's kind of hard for us to even remember like how they technically did it you know and like yeah like, happening because we're just so caught up in the scene and in the moment that's impressive and i feel like that's i feel like that's like the first like burst of extreme violence in this movie too because like there is another kill earlier where um the the killer's like in the box like watching the opera mm-hmm. and like the usher comes along and tells him like hey you can't be here and he kills him by like shoving the back of his neck through like a, a like a coat hanger but i feel like it sort of like cuts away from that a little bit where like it's not quite as visceral and then like when you know the the killer like takes her captive the first time and like forces her to watch him him kill somebody it's like that's like how it starts just like this fucking like huge ridiculous looking knife just like spearing through the bottom of a man's jaw it's just like my other favorite part of that scene is like for the majority of the film it's you know scored by opera and classical music but for the kill scene uh argento does something similar to phenomena where he uses like old school heavy metal Yes, um, that's some of my favorite stuff. I was I was actually earlier today. I was googling around, uh, looking for who who did those songs for this movie, and I was able to track it back to this uh, '80s uh, Italian heavy metal band called Gao that just like never really took off. They have like one full length album that came out in 1984 and a handful of demos, and they wrote two songs for this movie under the uh the pseudonym Steel Grave um and I I loved that shit 
And I, I was kind of surprised to to hear that they, uh, I mean, I haven't listened to the rest of their music. Maybe it's trash, but uh, they're really just like a, like a no name band. Um, but the, the two songs they use for, for this movie are bops. And I love, I do love that too, in like the contrast to the, the opera that is used so heavily in the rest of the movie. You know, it's like, these are like the, the ex- exploitation like horror movie like gruesome low culture moments of the film it's like the the mm-hmm. the introduction of low culture into this high culture setting and it's like we can't use opera during these scenes we got to use the music of the low culture we got to use heavy metal right <laughs> and then as soon as it's over as uh, then it goes back to you know the nicer, prettier music. Um, the score is uh, outside of like the yeah, pieces of opera, like the actual opera that we hear in the movie. Um, the score is uh, a, a Goblin and Brian Eno collab, which is pretty fucking swag. Yeah, amazing. I mean, Goblin, it, no stranger I, I, to Argento scores, of course, but uh, to get Brian Eno in on the mix as well is is pretty wow. tight. No, we were saying yeah. this the other day when we were watching uh, Sorcerer. Not for the podcast, it's just like Tease and I, I think we were just like watching the movie because we wanted to watch it. And um, that score was Tangerine Dream. And yes. we kind of settled on like the fact that if there was a banger score, like a, a banger synth score from the, the 70s and 80s, like it was either fucking Goblin or Tangerine Dream. Or Tangerine yeah. Dream. And yeah. yep, that's that's pretty much the case. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, yeah, or uh, John Carpenter. Or John Carpenter, like of course. Trifecta. Yeah. I will say, you know, I don't think the score in this was quite as iconic as, like, the Suspiria score. Of course uh, not. Or Deep Red. But it it did work really well in the context of the film. I mean, I think it's, I think it's intentionally more understated, right? Like, it's not supposed mm. to be at the forefront. And that's also why you get, like the godfather of ambient you know brian eno in on the mix right to sort of like tone down the the more like in your face like flashier goblin synth score that you'd be used to from a movie like this because i mean the 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 setting of the film revolves so heavily around music well opera music specifically so many scenes when they're just like in betty's apartment or whatever talking it's like at the beginning of the scene the first thing she'll do is like go in and like turn on the radio and she's always listening to the opera station right so just like during all of these conversations all of these dialogue scenes there's just like loud opera playing in the background Mm -hmm. and then you've got like the heavy metal shit for like the kills and the chases and then all the other times it's like there's still got to be something there but it's you know it's more understated it's not like drawing attention to itself i think it's i think it's really smart the the use of music in this movie is really clever yeah i really like it i really like the use of diegetic music like you were saying it really plays into some of the tension later on, too. For example, in the apartment scene, where she's kind of being hunted down by the killer mm, in her yeah. apartment, um, she blasts the opera music to kind of disorient him. And I thought that was great. And it kind of built on the tension just underlying in a super cool That's- way. That whole sequence is is incredible. It's really long and drawn out. Um, 
I but I want to use it as an opportunity to talk about the least important consequential aspect of that scene, but the one that like sticks with me the most is I want to talk about my favorite non-character in this movie, Daniela Suave. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who is a character who I don't know if we ever actually see him at all in this movie, but for like 10, 15 minutes of the film, people just will not stop saying his name. <laughs> It's like, this is, you know, at, later when she, after she's, like, told uh, the, the handsome inspector, you know, that she has been there at the, the scene of all of these killings and that, like, the guy, you know, ties her up and makes her watch and then leaves and everything. Um, and he's like, okay, go back to your house. And he's like, don't worry, I'm going to send over one of my best detectives, Danielle Suave to uh to look after you while you know while i'm gone and then she's like she gets like a phone call and she's like hello he's like hello yes it's me daniel daniel suave i'm coming up to to look after you and knocks on the door she's like is it daniel suave and he's like yes it is me daniel suave and then her like agent comes over later and she's like Downstairs, I met a policeman, and his name was Danielle Suave. And she's like, wait a minute, Danielle Suave? But Danielle Suave is in my apartment right now. Who was that that you met downstairs? And then they find that Danielle Suave has been murdered. And it's just like, this character is so unimportant, but he's got this just like ridiculous ridiculous name that they just will not stop saying. And I just... The fact that they say his full name every time just makes it so much funnier. You gotta say his full name. You can't just say Daniel. It's Daniel Suave. Yeah, and it's like they find they find his body and they're like not sure like if it's actually him and they like open his wallet and it does like a punch in like on his ID or whatever. It says Daniel Suave. (laughs) It's like Something else is I don't know why that got me so much. That is important to the plot that we should mention that happens during this sequence is before she's tied up and forced to watch, we don't see her have sex with with the guy, but we see the aftermath. And um uh weirdly phrased, but like we, we see them like talking to each other afterwards, her being like her apologizing and saying sorry, it just it never works. Um I you know, like I I, I just I can't She's like, I'm no good. I'm no good in bed. I'm no good in bed. I, I'm, I'm just, it, it, it doesn't work for me. And he's like, it's cool. It's whatever. But like, and we don't really know like specifically what that means, but like, she just has a bit hard time performing, which is cool because like that also kind of plays into that aspect of like performance anxiety and like, you know, like playing her role as Lady Macbeth and her not sure if she's ready to do it or if she's going to do it well. And like, well, no wonder she's worried about that. She's, she's also like has those same like insecurities and uncertainties about like intimacy as well. And we also see that she has these dreams about, like, crawling through vents and seeing some woman being, like, tortured by this same black-loved killer. Before she ever sees him, like, he's already made appearances in her dreams, and she's had this strange effect on her, and we don't know why. And I like, I really like all that stuff. I think, I think it's a really cool way to set things up. I, I, for a while, I was sort of thinking, like, oh, is she the killer? Is it, like, a multi- personality thing is she a tyler durden like whenever she falls asleep she becomes this killer and she's seeing it she's forced to watch because it's actually happening behind her own eyes or something like is it a metaphor that's where my head was going with it i'm you're, really glad you're, it wasn't that 
you're malignant brained. I'm malignant. You're malignant pilled. Yeah. Well, that's what I figured too. Is like I'd seen malignant. I know it was inspired by this genre. We have a black elf killer. Okay, is that what they're doing? Like, is the killer inside her head all along? Yeah. Funny because in malignant, it's literal. <laughs> but um, uh, I, I really like that that wasn't the case. But it it's it's played up just enough that you kind of think of that think of it as a red. I, I thought of it almost as a red herring. Um, well, I'm. I'm glad you bring this up because I think this is I think we should start getting into like the end of the film because I think this is where I have the most thoughts and also probably the most problems. Um, I like this movie, but I, I I like this movie a lot, in fact, but I think it kind of stumbles around a lot at the end. Um, in ways that I have sort of mixed feelings on, but kind of negative feelings. Mm-hmm. But the 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 dream thing is a good segue into that because you know it is revealed at the end through uh, their their plan becomes like oh well uh, the ravens were present at an earlier killing and uh, and he killed some of the ravens too the killer killed some of the ravens that were like flapping around it's like oh well they have great memories right so they'll uh let's at this key point of the performance we're gonna we're gonna release all of these ravens they just crash the cage of ravens through through a window on stage way they could do it yeah and just like release all these ravens and like yeah sure enough the ravens fly around that's when we get that great shot of you know, like Ben talked about earlier, going over the opera um, and like swooping down on all these people, the literal bird's eye view. Love all of this, by the way. I I know I introed this with my problems, but I love all of this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it reveals, because the Ravens do, they, they remember the killer, they find him and they attack him. Gasp, it was Inspector Sexy. He was the killer all along. You know, they the one of the ravens like gouges out his eye, more eye trauma. I love it. We they've got like his eye rolling around on the floor, and like one of the ravens comes by and eats it. Really gross. Um, yeah, it reminded me of like Piranha 3D. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, yeah. Um, this he escapes and he captures Betty again. And, you know, then gets his villain's monologue where he explains everything. And this is where it takes us back to the dream she's been having. It's, of course, revealed that they're not dreams at all, but repressed memories. And that's why she's seen this killer, this black hooded killer before, because he's been he's you know, always been a part of her life. This, I think, is a little bit unbelievable because like the the guy like the sexy inspector does not look that much older than her. Um, so it's like that, that I don't quite buy, but he reveals is like, Oh, your mom was a, a weird murderous freak. And she and I would kidnap and torture and murder women together. And as, as like a, like your mom thought it was sexy and we would, we would bang. And she, you know, taught me to love killing and all of this stuff. Um, and, you know, so then when she died, like I, now I'm coming after you because I want you to love me because you remind me so much of your mother. This, I, I, I do not love this. How how do you guys feel about this? I I'd like to get an outside perspective. I think it I is... feel like it's a, just a little sloppy because it it feels like hastily explained in the third yeah. act. 
Um, I do really and not like... hinted at in a in a well, meaningful way either. It, it's hinted at, but just a, a little too subtly. Really, like in the in the dreamy abstract sequences, they cut back to the uh, the mother who's being tortured uh, and the black glove killer several times, but it's done in such an abstract way um, that you can't completely gather what's been going on. Um, so to just kind of sloppily explain it all in a big villain's monologue, just yeah, felt... and and I don't I don't feel like there was like it it never seemed like this character had like sort of a traumatic experience with her mother that like her mother was like wantonly cruel and like beat her or anything like just like anything that would like give us the idea that like she has mother issues and that like her mother was a was a bad person i don't think that's like really even suggested in the film i have thoughts yeah go go ahead i have a lot of thoughts on this as i actually disagree a little bit i think it is while it's not set up so much directly with her minus the dream the vague dreams um where we see those events happening it there is this really cool narrative parallel with the girl in the apartment. Um, so we didn't talk about this, but during like, after the Suave sequence, she's trying to get away from the killer, a young girl who we learn has been watching throughout the scenes, because like, we see her like in, their, in the opening scene with the, with the protagonist, we see like a silhouette watching from the vents, and we think it's the killer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, later on, it's revealed as she's trying to escape that, no, it's a young girl watching from the vents who can... Who it turns out uh, found a way into them and can like wa- and just watches everybody living their lives again voyeuristically. There's that whole theme of voyeurism and being watched. Mm. Um, and uh, she she crawls into the vents with her and the girl is like, "Here, I'll I'll take you to safety and we'll we'll go to like a, another room." And while they're traveling uh, through the vents, the she asks her like, "Why do you come here? Why do you do this?" And she says, "Well, I like to you know come here and escape whenever my parents are fighting." And she says, "Oh, does your and it's kind of awkward here too, but like she does, she says like, "Oh, does your dad hit your mom?" And she says, "Yes." Do they hit each other? They hit each other, right? 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 Yeah. That's right. Do they she, hit each that's other? That's actually important. You're right because she does. She does express it mutually. Um, and they get into the apartment, and uh, the mother shows up, and she's like, "Who is this?" You know, like, "It's my friend." She's like, "You need to get the fuck out of here. That's weird. You're an adult. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, crawling around vents?" Um, yeah, with with my young daughter. Yeah, for the police are going to be called. Um, and, you know, our protagonist hates the police, so she's out of there. I really like that parallel, that we have this young girl watching from the events. She's, her parents, you know, like, fight and hurt each other, and there's, you know, and, like, she, she watches to escape. And we find out that our protagonist was the same when she was a child, and she was, like, in the events or somewhere hiding and watching. And... You know, like, it left this imprint on her when she was a child, and now the killer has returned, and he's forcing her to watch these things again and to remember. And I think that's dope. I I really like I really like all those themes and how they kind of play into each other. I do agree. It's, the, I mean, really, the, the hardest part is when you've already mentioned it, that's, like, the age difference between the two doesn't really line up. Um, part of that isn't just the fact that he's shown to be not that much older than her, but also, like, her character is supposed to be younger than the actress portraying her. And so yeah, she must be in like her early twenties. But even so, he looks like. Don't they say that she's like seventeen or eighteen? I don't think so. 
I well, don't think the, so. At the beginning, mm-hmm. oh, you know what it is? They say, um, oh, uh, you know, like, it's okay, you can play the role of Lady Macbeth, Verity's original Lady Macbeth. Oh, only. yeah, Verity's original, yeah, Lady Macbeth was 17, yeah. No, I, I think Betty's, like, at least in her 20s, like, she has a whole apartment and everything, like, she's 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 an adult um she's not very old though and like he does he seems like that he was you know in like maybe his early 30s like that's how he looks at least you know he's very youthful and like handsome looking you know he's not like a like an older man which i feel like yeah i feel i feel like is is sort of what you'd need and you know i i think I think you bring up a lot of good points about like the parallels between her and the little girl. And like that stuff is definitely there. I just feel like it's so like clumsily explained, like clumsily handled in that reveal. And it just feels like it, it also just like sort of feels like a weird motivation for the killer. You know, it's like, Oh, your mom also was a psycho and I loved her and she taught me to be a psycho, but now she's gone. So I want to make you a psycho so we can be together. Externally, it skeezed me out. And it's it's skeezy. It's skeezy yeah. as hell. Because it's never really made clear whether or not he's her father too. And you know, I think the assumption is not, but also like it is. And it's not I, outside their own possibility. And that's it's why not I'm saying their own like, possibility. And yeah. also like the role should have been given I mean, to a, an older actor, you know? Please correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't Argento kind of infamous for, like, filming a rape scene with his daughter? Like... Yeah, it's, that's true. It's yeah. skeezy. It skeezes me out. I don't know, man. Like, that's that's pretty, pretty fucking weird. Like, and uh, so those things, that, that kind knowing that also kind of made I mean, it's kind of I think, I think narratively, like, it's, it's fine to be ski, like, he's the villain, like, it yeah, should yeah, be yeah, easy, sure. you should be grossed mm-hmm. out and disgusted by him, but it's just like, I don't know, it just, it just feels like a, a, a kind of, like, clumsy villain's monologue there at the end, and he's like, oh, he, you know, he's got her blindfolded, and he, like, puts the gun in her hand, and he's like, I'm gonna make you shoot me for some reason so I can die instead of being caught. I kind of like that, um, like, on paper, because at that point, she she makes it clear to him she's not interested. She's not like her mother. And he's like, right. well, in that case, I might as well go out in flames. And that's fine. Like, that kind of works. But yeah, the sure. the delivery and the way it's set up is a little bit clumsy. But I do like that, once again, we get a POV perspective with her where we're seeing from underneath the blindfold and we can just barely make out what's beneath it and it feels again they mm-hmm. do make it feel like you're wearing a blindfold i i, I yeah. it, it doesn't just feel like they have a cloth over the camera which even if they do they they worked it right and it, it it feels good like when she's like holding the gun and she's not certain what did you all think about the the sort of fake out with the fire and everything yeah that's what i was gonna get into oh, yeah. um you know after after she believes that she, you know, kills him, shoots him, and then the room catches on fire, and, you know, she escapes, leaving the his burning body behind. Then we get the film's epilogue, um, which I have very mixed feelings, I think mostly negative once again, on, on the film's epilogue. 
Um, Orion did too. They wanted Argento to cut this entire section out of the movie um, for its American release. Uh, he did not, which, you know, I can respect him sticking to his guns. Um, but I also kind of side with Orion on this one that I think this part sort of undermines other things in the movie. Um, we cut forward in time. She's in Switzerland now in the Alps um with the the director um and the the director of the play who who he's the one who devised the whole raven plan um and then it's has, like he has like a girlfriend but you know he's one of those italian directory guys well, yeah he's a he's a he's kind of cool with it because they're weird and european and yeah he's a say uh, he's a sexy hotshot director you know he's got all kinds of bitches um, but yeah, so they're, they're in Switzerland. I think they're, are they doing a movie or another opera or something? I don't know. Um, but it, then it's like they get a phone, she gets a phone call or he gets a phone call. It's like, oh, uh, it turns out that, uh, the, the killer, that actually wasn't his body. While she was blindfolded, he, uh, set up a, a mannequin wearing his clothes and that's what she shot and burned. And he's actually alive uh and still trying to kill her and then he shows up and we get some some nice shots of her like running through this like beautiful uh like mountain swiss mountain valley um but you know he like catches her and she's like oh you know what i actually uh i am so glad that you actually did kill all of those people and i think it's hot and sexy and i turns out i'm exactly like my mother um and then uh, a bunch of cops show up out of nowhere, although she did see the dogs. That's how she knew that they were coming. And the cops just, like, apprehend him. That's sort of the end of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> she goes and, she goes and like, rolls around, like, in some, in some flowers. She's like, I'm, turns out I'm actually not like anybody else. I'm, I'm, I'm built different. Um... I love... I, I'm, I'm actually, like girls. I'm, yeah, it's like, I'm not like all the other girls. I'm built different. I actually, um, while most people hate bumblebees and lizards, I actually love them. And, um, I'll show you by, uh, lifting this small rock off of a lizard so it can run away and be happy. And I'm going to roll around in some flowers. I'm I'll actually like... I'm actually, like, extra gentle. It turns out that, like, you know, like, most people who aren't murderers, you know, like, they're they're just, like, normal, but I'm, like, I'm, like, extra not a murderer. I, I kind of love it. I think, I think that films from this era, and even still today, have a habit of wanting to leave you uncertain, and maybe the killer's, thinking maybe the killer's still out there, or that maybe our protagonist by the end of the movie has become the monster themselves. And they almost do that, where it's like, oh, is she lying to the cops there? She loves to do that. Like, maybe she is that evil, and they just happen to catch him there. And, um, like, who knows? Uh, but then they take it that one step further, right before credits. Nope, she's happy. She's good, and she's a nice person, and we should be happy for her. I kind of I... love that. It's stupid. It's not, like, necessarily good or, like, an impactful way to end your movie, but I enjoy it. I think it's fun. But the, but it doesn't, like, when the actual credits do roll, it doesn't, like, get, it doesn't leave you with any, like, understanding that you wouldn't have had if they just rolled credits after 
the killer quote unquote died in the fire. You know, it's like that would have been oh, a fine. That w- that's what I'm saying. You gain yeah, absolutely nothing. You gain absolutely oh, yeah. nothing except say, except a beautiful setting. Well, and I will say, from you know literal perspective, that whole scene just feels like it ties a bow on things way too nicely. But I almost feel like maybe it it's more deceptive than it seems. Because, you know, it's so picturesque and bright and colorful where the rest of the movie isn't. And it hits on all of these points that I I would imagine our main character, Betty, would have, like, inserted herself in in, like, a fantasy. So it almost makes me consider whether that last sequence is even real. I think that's, like, that's an okay reading. I just, even if that's the case, like, I I don't know what it would, <laughs> what it adds to the film, though. For me, for me, at least. Sure, I don't know, maybe, sure. maybe it's like she's been, she's been so traumatized by her experiences that she's created a, a, a more beautiful fantasy um, in her brain. Even though, in, if it is a fantasy, like, her friend, the director who helped save her life, like, gets murdered gets brutally murdered yeah you know um and the killer that if if it is a fantasy the killer who died in the fire instead gets arrested you know it's like i i still like even if it is fantasy like i i don't know if it like doesn't add anything to the film really yeah no it Um, it is a very clumsy finale i think yeah it just it feels it just feels strange because I mean I I it feels so disjointed from the rest of the film, um, which has you know like like very I feel like you know very clear themes and intentions and motivations, and it's just like that tacked on to the end. I don't know. Maybe I need to like read more about it or think think about it. Maybe I'm maybe I'm too dumb for Argento's vision, but I don't know. <laughs> No, I don't think you are. Uh, I think I think that, that that seems like a pretty reasonable read for what's presented to us in, in the movie that isn't that deep. Like yeah. um it's a it's a crazy vibrant slasher. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day. And it it has some great themes in it, and I, I think that they're expressed pretty directly for the most part. Um and uh I don't I don't know if there is that much more to read into it. I, I, I think if anything, um a, a lot of those decisions and that, that leave us a little kind of that leave us with our heads cocked are ones that probably happened because of production that probably happened because of crazy scheduling or people acting like prima donnas or being difficult to work with. Like that's, I mean, that's so often the case with movies, right? Like someone gets sick sure. and can't make yeah. it that day and they have to like rewrite, they have to do rewrites and stuff. Like, yeah. so, so often <laughs> like that, that's, that's why is because it turns out, Hey, productions are really difficult to work on yeah. and, and people are chaotic. <laughs> I think I think you're totally right, but I I don't I don't know if that's the case in you know in this instance just because like how hard Argento thought like to have this epilogue like still in the movie, um, at least for like the the U.S. release, like it means you know it means he was happy with it. It means he you know he thought it was important to the film. If it was something that ended up sloppy because of you know the 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 chaos that comes from movie making, I don't know. I think he would be more willing to be like, um, it was a nice experiment, but it doesn't like 
add to the film. But he obviously he obviously feels different. I have so. one more theory about that. Yeah, go for it. That man got through a really we love we love theories. Big old this is a game theory. Like big old put your put on your tinfoil hats with me, right? Right for this really crazy idea. But what if? Argento had such a hellish time on this production because I mean, look at it, right? All the ravens in the theater, and like apparently, like the actress was a prima donna, like that was you know, difficult to work with. Look at all of that information. Also, like, sounds like Argento was kind of hard to work with too. So, eh, who knows? That's what I'm that. saying. Like, I don't know how hard she but, actually was to work with, like, but regardless, that production must have been hell, right? My man just wanted a vacation in the Swiss Alps for the epilogue, and the film budget <laughs> would have paid for it, right? And you that, know what? I, that. <laughs> <laughs> that that I think is is not even that far fetched of a theory. I think that no, actually right. makes like, a lot of sense. Yeah. After this wild thing, he just wanted it's to like, make oh, it. they just no. they just yeah, they just wanted to go to Switzerland for a and little I while. Can't blame them. I I, I I think that's that makes a lot of sense. You know, all these travel shows and you know movies that had to go from location to location. Like Tom Cruise has said it himself in interviews, right? Like that he he takes a lot of these movies just so we can have like a paid vacation to like crazy countries and stuff. That's a known part of the industry. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, and I mean, this was, like, this is an excuse to do like do awesome travel. <laughs> so, it, this, this yeah. was a, a pretty hellish production um, enough so that a lot of people thought that the Macbeth curse had translated, had, had uh, transferred to the, the production of the film as oh, well. Um, I think an actor died on set. I don't know which actor i don't know who um might have been one of the act the one of the extras but uh there was at least one death during the production of this film so um, like i would i don't know um so the honestly your your hypothesis about uh an epilogue in in the alps (laughs) so that they could take a little vacation uh maybe not so far-fetched after all are y'all are you ready to rate this oh yeah yeah Ben, you start. This was your pick. A great pick. Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is probably one of my favorite Argentas, if not my favorite. It is a little sloppy at the end, a little messy. Um, but man, oh man, there's so many good shots and sequences. I'm going to give it a strong four and a half out of five. Um, big recommendation. Tease, could Please. you go back? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, I... Uh... I, I'm I'm with you on a lot of that. This is definitely one of my favorite Argentos as well. It has some of my favorite sequences. Um, I had sort of for it's been a long time since I'd seen this movie before this. I'd sort of forgotten how clunky that ending is. Um, and in in my memory, uh, this was a, a, a four and a half out of five. Um, I, I do think I, I am going to knock it to a four, um, just because I think like the last ten fifteen minutes does not do the film a lot of favors but overall yeah really really fantastic film and definitely still a big recommendation despite that despite my problems with the end um i I think the rest of the film more than makes up for it uh so i'm gonna give it a four out of five okay um i asked for you to go next because i was torn between a four and a four and a half (laughs) um but thinking about it Personally, like I already said, while I, I, I fully agree the, the ending is kind of messy, um, I also found that charming, so it didn't bother me. And I even liked like, the roses and butterflies and happiness in a field bit at the end. It's stupid. 
it, it, it's really dumb, but it, it, I'm smiling, like, still talking about it and thinking about it. Um, I think because the scenes were so visceral, and I, I remember, like, distinctly, like, being pulled forward and, like, having to get closer to the screen to, like, because I was so, like, tense and nervous about what was happening, and, and in shock at, like, the bit of blood and her eyes flickering under those needles. Um, I'm gonna give it a 4.5. It's, I, I was, I almost gave it a 4. I, I, it's, but it, god damn it, it's really good, and it, it brought, I got a lot out of it. Um, I could see giving this movie a much lower score as well. I could see not liking this movie very much, but man, I fucking loved it. Yeah, uh, 4.5, I think. Cool. Uh, Well, that will give Opera an average of 4.3 out of 5. Definitely a resounding recommendation from the three of us. It's on Shudder. If you have a Shudder subscription, uh, definitely go check it out there if you haven't seen it before. uh, Even if you have, maybe it's time for a revisit. Yeah, I think it's on Tubi as well. So if you don't pay for Shudder, it is available for free. With Hell yeah. Another big win for Tubi. We Hell love yeah. it. We're, we out here. Um, next week is a, a Patreon pick. Uh, this pick comes courtesy of our honorary pod boy, Sam. Um, and Sam has picked for us uh, something very different. Um, a film from 2021 from Senegal called Saloum. Um, I've heard some things about this movie, but I haven't seen it. Have any of us seen it? I don't think so. No, no. That's well, why we love Patreon picks. The podcast, and I, I thought y'all were talking about... Uh, <laughs> you thought it was Salo. Salo. Yeah, I thought you guys were talking about Salo, which I also haven't seen, so I... Uh, Salo, Saloum. Uh, talking about perverted Italians. So. Yeah. No, we're not talking about Salo next week. Uh, we're talking about Saloum. Um, so, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I'm excited. Cleve, I know we're not. I know we're not together. We're recording remotely. Do you have a sponsor? <laughs> um. Uh. Oh. Fuck. Uh, no. All right. I'm. I'm. I'm channeling the sponsor shelf into your brain. Oh, my brain. I feel. So it was brought to you by a skeleton in a fitted snapback. I don't know what a snapback is, but I'm getting a very clear signal of the word snapback. We're we're snapping back to the past with a skeleton and he's fitted in the snapback. We're snapping back. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Oh God, I'm exhausted. I need I need I need to sleep for three days now. All that psychic energy really taking it out of me. Oh. Yeah, really draining. Um, well, that'll that'll bring us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, if you if you liked the show. Don't forget to go leave us a five-star rating wherever you're listening to this, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. Rate and review the show, please. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podpeoplepod. Shout out to our honorary pod boys, Sam, Zach, and Micah. Uh, They're the ones who make it possible and who get to recommend movies to us like next week's episode. So if you want to be like them, uh, head over to Patreon. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at podpeoplepod and at letterbox.com slash podpeoplepod, where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those reviews. Uh, I am I'm still, I'm still on Twitter. I'm hanging in there. It's going down, but I'm, I'm there at some spooky snake. If you, if you're still on that sinking ship. Um, so my recommendation corner for the week Recently, I got a Steam Deck, and it is such a great device for playing 
games, but more than anything, it's a great emulation machine. So in a few clicks, um, you can set up all these retro emulators and play anything from, you know, SNES to PS1 to PS2 uh, to GameCube to N64, anything you can imagine. And a lot of these games are kind of forgotten about and just available on the Internet Archive. Um, so, yeah, play some play some older games. There's a lot of good ones out there. It's so um, funny to me that, like, uh, this this little, like, Ben's Review Corner started with, like, oh, check out this, like, metal album no one's heard of. It's got, like, 100 views on YouTube to, like, last week you were, like, yo, Breath of the Wild, Tears of the Kingdom, and now you're just, like, sponsoring the uh, uh, the Steam Deck? When did you become no, a No, 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 I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm saying emulation. I'm saying emulate old games and play them because they're free. Okay, um, right, I played, funny. yeah. Uh, most recent one that I played on there is a game called Sin and Punishment. It's a uh, a rail shooter for the N64. Only got a Japanese release. Um, but it's a weird, uh, fun romp. It, it uh, reminds me a lot of Evangelion. Well, the video game I played this week was Gollum, and I can't recommend it. <laughs> I refuse to elaborate um, uh, <laughs> publicly. Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, the, as, as always, a shout out to Dread XP. Go check out and play any and all of their games. Um, we can put a lot of stuff out on Switch. Uh, uh, go go check out um, Fishing Vacation. Uh, we just ported that to the Switch. Um, it's a really cool little, like, um, classic Game Boy style um, fishing game with, uh, that. Uh, Incorporates horror in some fun ways. So, um, yeah, there's lots of great stuff out there. Uh, thanks. Well, thank you for listening. And until next week, I don't know about you boys, but I need to go get out of this tuxedo that I've been wearing.